Welcome to Cow Talks. I'm Chris Pravat, Beef Cattle and Forage Economist at the University of Florida. And I am Marcelo Valau, Forage Extension Specialist with the University of Florida. And this is our podcast, where we dive deep into the main topics affecting livestock and forage production in the southeastern United States. From the mainstream media to new technologies straight from our research stations. From cattle prices to international trade. From our pastures and beyond. Join us on this journey as we tackle the main issues affecting our producers and the sustainability of our production systems. Today, we have Dr. Cheryl Makoviak, Associate Professor in Nutrient Management and Water Quality at the North Florida Research and Education Center, and Dr. Young Lin, Assistant Professor in Soil Health here in Gainesville with the Department of Soil, Water, and Ecosystem Sciences. And today, we're going to talk about digging into what matters, and our discussion will be related to soil health. Uh, Cheryl Young, uh, welcome. Okay, so I'm Associate Professor with the Soil, Water, and now Ecosystems Department. So we've changed our name. And I'm located at one of our RECs or RECs, and I'm in Quincy location. It's about uh, 30 miles west of Tallahassee. So I'm in the panhandle where we have real soils. Uh, today I'm working down in uh, south central Florida where they have uh, spodosols or flatwood soils. Uh, I, I look primarily on forage-based systems, looking at the interaction of plant nutrient needs with soil fertility and also water quality. And so forage systems are one of the best ways to build soil carbon regardless. And, and so that's why one of the reasons I think they're a cool uh, system to work with. Well, thanks, Chris and Marcelo for having me here. Um, again, my name is Yam. I'm a junior faculty from the same department. I'm located in Ginslow. My assignment basically includes just research and teaching. Uh, I don't have an extension assignment, but my job here really is to try to make sense the concept of soil health and understand what it really means, um, particularly for our growers. Um, so I have a few PhD and master's students working on various uh, soil health evaluation projects in the Southeast. Um, I'm really happy to be here. Awesome. Appreciate that. Appreciate y'all participating. Chris and I are excited to, to hear from you. So soil health, we hear more and more about soil health. And it's something that depending on who you talk to, there is a different definition. I'm not sure, not sure about the definition of soil health. Let's start from, let's start in that point. What is the, this definition of soil health and why is it important for us? Soil health is a very vague concept. Um, Many people actually believe being vague is a good thing for soil health uh, because, you know, particularly for growers, right? Like whether you're from Florida or from, let's say, the Midwest, you probably have a very different needs uh, from your soils, right? So, you know, for them, they probably have, you know, relatively good structure, um, but they worried about, okay, can I get maybe water holding? Uh, can I maybe minimize my compaction? Over here, what we worry about is building carbon, retaining nutrients, keeping the, the good stuff in the soils, right? So I think we have very different understanding of soil health. That's very natural. So I think, you know, being a vague idea, it's the beauty of soil health so that everybody can relate to it. And it also kind of uh, appeals our instincts related to the idea of a human's health. So it reminded you that soil is actually alive, right? You know, 
not only we have you know the physical parts of it, the air, the particles, the water, but we also have some germs in it, and we have some worms in it, right? They all play a key role in making soil alive, and all together, soil provides a lot of different you know functions for us. It helps us in very many different ways, you know, including supporting our crops, um, but also uh, in terms of storing water. Getting rid of the things you don't want, like、uh, you know, contaminates that plant, controlling weeds, etc. So I think, you know, it is a you know being a vague idea is actually an advantage to this concept. Well, for researchers, however, it's tricky because you know we have very different interpretations. So you know, in our group, what we are really thinking、uh, more is about okay, particularly for the growers in Florida, particularly for our Cattle and dairy industry. What does soil health mean? And we're still working on it. In the in the olden days, we used to talk about soil quality, and we don't do that as much. What's happened is that people understand soil chemistry in terms of fertility, so that was related to soil quality. But there's also the physical aspect. So that's like drainage or percolation,、um, the hydrology, and We always knew about the biological, but with the newer technologies and science and ways to really measure the biology at the microscopic level, especially, I think more emphasis then really came into the biological portion. So we have, in terms of soil fertility, which we used to only think about the chemistry, now we think about chemistry, physical, and the、uh, biological. So really, three prongs or three legs of the stool. And with a little more emphasis now with soil health in terms of the biology. So、uh, back in the days, and coming from a more traditional agricultural school, we used to talk more about soil organic matter. And it seems like those two concepts of soil health and soil organic matter they are pretty similar, but not the same. Is that、uh, correct understanding? I think there are definitely similarities. To me, soil organic matter is the Most important indicator of soil health. That is to say, generally speaking, if a soil has a higher soil organic matter, then we think it will be healthier.、Um, but I think, like Cheryl mentioned, the idea of soil health really has a big biological component in it, and higher organic matter doesn't necessarily correlate with high biological activity. Things that you think about, like pest control.、Um, Because there are other drivers that can contribute or can make a soil, you know, really high organic matter. For instance, if you have a very like really wet places where you know maybe water is inundated, it's always saturated. So you could have plenty of soil organic matter there,、um, but the soil condition probably is really not good, particularly for agricultural services. I think soil health is again a very vague idea with a lot of emphasis on biology,、um, but I think for If if you wanted to start to understand soil health, I will actually start with organic matter. I agree, and I think having some realistic、um, expectation of what you're going to do with the system you have, because if we could just keep building soil organic matter, we'd have soil organic matter up to the to the sky, right? And so obviously we're losing organic matter as we're creating it, and the goal is, as terms of Possibility and health for the system is that we could, if it if it's depleted in organic matter, replace it at a higher rate than we are 
depleting it through mineralization, um, which is basically organisms using that carbon for their own purposes. And again, some systems, no matter how much you want, say 5% organic matter, it's just not going to happen under some of our systems versus maybe if you're further north and some of the heavier clay systems, you might get up 5, 8, 10% organic matter. And, and so there's these, the mineralogy of the soils and what are you trying to grow and how are you managing that system all play into how much organic matter you have and how much you can obtain before you eventually reach like a steady state. So considering, considering we're in Florida here and our soils is they're extremely, for, for most part, extremely sandy with a few pockets of uh, heavier, heavier soil with a little more clay in the, in the panhandle in northern areas and some mock soils uh, spread all around the, around the state. Those are higher in organic matter, but how can we really get that organic matter to increase and that soil health to improve in those sandier soils? And what is the limit? What are we talking about? Because we see, okay, we need practice that are going to put more carbon in the soil and sequester more. And people think that is this is an infinite process. You're always adding more and more and more. And Well, like I said, there, there's limitations. So with the sod-based crop rotation, that's taking a rotation of crops under conservation tillage and then alternating with a perennial grass for at least two years. So we're building up carbon more than we would with just rotating crop after annual crop. Um, about two and a half percent in our panhandle soils is about as far as they've gotten so far. So that, that's a good frame of reference. Mm. There's always going to be someone who can put like, you know, lots of money in throwing more and more compost. Eventually they can call that work, you know, but if they stop doing it, they're going to lose all that organic matter. So people can play games and, and sort of somewhat artificially increases organic matter for a little time. But um, in general practices, row crops, maybe it's, you know, one and a half percent organic matter, you know, and, and then the side rotation is a better system for pasture systems, you know, two to three percent maybe also um, and then tree systems are some of our best in terms of total volume of soil some of the highest carbon but you don't see it on the surface so also where do you want your carbon to be do you want to be able to utilize it or are you just interested in trying to store it ah yeah. well that that leads to another question what is carbon in the soil and the different the different aspects of carbon in the soil the different phases of carbon in the soil so is is plant is leader just plant matter, is that soil carbon or what type of soil carbon, how that moves into being organic matter? It, like Cheryl said, in our systems in Florida, the climate condition is very, very favorable for decomposition of organic matter. So even like in the winter, in the relatively northern part of the state, uh, we have shown research that if you put fresh plant residual into the soil, over half of of the mass, the nitrogen will be gone in less than a month, right? That's where we're talking about the coldest part um, of the, you know, of the year. So basically, there's a lot of activity going on, biological activity in the soil that are constantly pumping carbon out of the system. So I think for your initial question, the, the important thing to think about is, it, can, can we try to maintain some cover on the ground? Can we, you know, Think of if you happen to have a fallow period in your operation, is there a way for you to include cover during that, replace fallow with cover uh, so that there's some activity on, 
you know, above ground in the plant that can, you know, try to counter that microbial activity that are trying to getting rid of the carbon in your soil. Uh, and going to our question, Marcelo, uh, since we have sandy soils, um, basically, generally, we think that the, the carbon spend relatively less time in our soils. They started from the plant, they got degraded, processed, but they don't typically have a lot of fine particle like clays uh, that, you know, that could hold on to the carbon for longer times. And there are peer review literature out there suggesting that sandy soil are particular uh, carbon in sandy soil has very, very fast turnaround, typically on the, on the scale of decades to maybe millennial scale. Uh, well, in contrast, if you look at you know, high clay soil, even in really humid places like you know, tropical system, their turnaround could be as high as you know, a few hundred years or even thousands of years. Uh, so carbon generally uh, spend less time in the soil. So I think it's very, very important to think about, uh, to, to think about adding carbon, finding ways to add carbon into the soil, um, preferably for me is via plants, the crop that you grow, um, the cover crops that you have over there. I think compost also uh, does magic as well to maintain their carbon input. But as long as, you know, we, we started to remove the cover, re remove the carbon addition, the carbon will be depleted very, very quickly in our system. You, you, you touched on, on compost and, and veering a little bit to the to, to water management practice, not plant related. Uh, I do get questions frequently from, um, especially from equine producers, in terms of putting compost uh, in other was uh, biochar or other carbon sources to increase that carbon in the soil. So does that work and what does it mean? Uh, if, if we're really talking about, you know, increasing the soil organic matter, like kind of a keeping the carbon in our soil, um, it, it means that the carbon has to stay in the soil. Uh, compost uh, or biochar probably has a higher potential because biochar just chemically uh, much more inert uh, to any biological or chemical alteration. So presumably the carbon in the biochar can stick around for hundreds, if not thousands of years. For compost, however, it, it seems like our system, our biology is so powerful that uh, regardless of you know how much you put in there, the biology going to dictate that sooner or later the carbon will be exited out so in my opinion increasing carbon maybe it's a secondary priority the, the first priority would be to kind of increase kind of the the flow of carbon if you will from the plants into the soil right simply because there's so much you know microbial power in the soil that's getting the carbon out so let's just provide that carbon you know make get them to go do the work i've seen uh, literature, uh, amazing effect of compost, but a lot, you know, a lot of time in the drier system, like in California, in west part of the nation where water is more limiting. So adding compost in those soils, that's the magic of increasing the capacity of the soils to hold water. Um, so it's, it's a kind of a secondary effect. It's the secondary effect is of carbon and compost as well. Um, you know, the, the we, I've seen reports uh, from ranch uh, that have shown that compost additions greatly increase their uh, forage production, forage quality, um, you know, something, you know, even more effective than irrigation. But mm -hmm. in our system, I think water typically is not our primary concern uh, and our biology is just really, really, really fast. So uh, I think I I'm, 
I'm a little bit hesitant directly on the potential of just purely increasing soil carbon in Florida. As Yang mentioned, it, yeah, it tends to have a much longer life than, than some of those other materials, um, but um, it's also different in terms of the types of biochar you apply. So if you apply, say, hardwoods or pine-sourced uh, biochar, they'll tend to last a lot longer than, say, animal. People make biochar out of poultry litter and animal waste. As well, more people are starting to look at biosolids, which used to be called sludge, but it's out of waste, municipal waste treatment plants. So those biochars will probably cycle much faster. At least that's what the literature is showing. But the, one of the other benefits for that is it tends to reduce um, uh, N2O gas from nitrogen uh, volatilization. So it's actually helping against some of the greenhouse gas issues we can have. So there's other benefits besides just uh, sequestering carbon. One, one, one of the things I had in mind, especially when I asked the questions, the, the question compost, which is related to most of the questions I received from our clients here in Florida, is uh, normally a high, a high CN ratio compost that's uh, bedding, uh, normally horse bedding, and, and that also adds another layer of uh, complication there because if you don't do a real good job composting that, you end up being a sink of nitrogen and end up having a detrimental effect. Yes, and the mineralization rate's slower. So um, when you're adding those materials, you still have to probably add mineral nitrogen to, um, and as you say, because it gets tied up, but also the release of the material, the nitrogen that, that's locked up internally anyways so even like biosolids i'm just harvesting plots right today and uh we apply the same total nitrogen but as biosolids we always have that delay because of mineralization um, versus a mineral that's just soluble like a salt absolutely so that was like the first like that's one of the alternatives for ranchers uh and farmers in florida to uh to take to increase soil health can you talk about some of the other things that uh, farmers and ranchers can do to actively increase their soil health on their on their properties here? Number one, do not overgraze. <laughs> that is like the key out of all the problems we have with, with ranchers and, and the breakdown of pastures is the management. They don't have the management where they need it. And if they could take care of that, they could take care of a lot of weed problems, fertility problems, drought problems, disease problems, it really would help in a lot of ways. Um, it's not going to be the magic bullet and take care of everything all the time, but it'll get you pretty close. We're at plots right now. Low potassium plots are um, just, we had dog fennel stems thicker than my thumb. And the ones that had the complete fertilizer, what it needed, there's like next to no weeds in it. So you know, again, if there's no plants growing, there's no roots. And if there's no roots, you're not building any carbon anyway. So all that ties together. It's a whole system. You have to look at all aspects. And, and I think, thankfully, you know, just try to try to maintain the cover. Um, if to think about if, if you happen to have a fellow in your rotation, is there a way that you could increase some cover? Is there some cover crop that you're um, and then and I think uh, often soil health management is also um, problem driven. Uh, for instance, if you happen to have any issues, major issues that are bothering you in your systems, um, for instance, if you know you're um, you're having really low productivity, I think, or or maybe salinity issues, I think target that. Talk to your extension agents because if 
if all things are good and that you're happy with your performance, it's more likely that your soul is pretty healthy. Um, in terms of what to do, um, started with keeping the, the plans, keeping the cover always on the systems, um, and then focus on the problems that perhaps you're, uh, you're dealing with right now. So uh, there's, there's something that, that kind of been scratching my head recently about um, is, and, and it's related to grazing and to grazing practices on, on forage. So some, some lines of thought would say uh, heavy grazing, having heavy stocking density, which means a lot of animals in one pasture at the same time, they're going to harvest whatever they, they want, and they're going to stump that and put that biomass down in the ground. I want to hear your opinion about that, because I only have an opinion, because that's not my area of my, my science, but uh, in, in my opinion, in terms of grazing in grazing management and fertilization, well, you're, you're shooting yourself in the food because you're stumping out a lot of good forage and preventing regrowth. But in terms of soil health, does it really affect that biomass that you're just laying on top of the ground or it, is it going up or it's going down? I, I, I think it's kind of my opinion too, but I mean, the work I've seen with other systems, if the carbon isn't underground, it's not gonna build soil carbon really. There's some of soluble components might add some key function of one type or another, but um, there's been work where basically they're showing the above ground doesn't do much. It's really, you know, what's happening underground in terms of budgets or amounts to get real amounts. Um, the other thing, yeah, I agree with you, Marcelo, that if they're just stomp, it's, and even when they say it's stomping it into the ground, I see them stomping it onto the ground. I don't really see it going under the soil surface unless it's really mucky. And then they're causing all kinds of other problems, I would think, especially even animal health, you know, you've got, you know, condition of always wet feet and all. So anyways, I, I, I don't think that's a, a great idea, but there is something interesting in what you're saying, especially with uh, intensive grazing. Um, I'm seeing this with a lot of our work. We've done plots that have had forages on them for like a decade or more, no animals. And we've measured some, some aspects, not all the aspects, just a few that relate to soil health in terms of carbon. And we don't really see any differences between a legume system even and the, the Bahia grass system. And the legume is a perennial peanut. But in the systems that one of our other faculty, jo Dr. Jose Dubay has, he's got the grazing component. And there's something about that forage being processed through the animal coming out as excreta seems to have a lot more benefit to the soil carbon and the, and the system than just even growing the plants by themselves. The plants are like one step and then the animals really add a whole nother step above that. And so the, to me, the perfect system is having a combination of the, the, the plant and the animal with their waste product being put out. Yeah, yeah related, related to that, what we saw back in Brazil in my uh, previous research group with uh, Dr. Carvalho there, is that the, the grazing actually, grazing is a tool for, for controlling forage growth. And for example, if you think about small grains and the case was uh, oat, uh, black oat being grazed or not being grazed, the one that's not being grazed is going to end the cycle much faster. And when you put grazing there, that extends the cycle. Uh, and then, okay, grazing, moderate grazing, not intensive grazing. That's very important, the moderate grazing or lenient grazing. And it was pushing that cycle longer 
in the total biomass accumulation above ground, and I imagine below ground as well, ended up being greater than the ungrazed treatment. One of my, you know, things that we've looked at at NFREC is, uh, as well as other places in North Florida is, is mixing a couple of cool season forages together and warm season forages together. Um, how, you know, d- does, does that have, do we, do we know of that any impact that's had on additional forage species, or is that just a benefit to us in terms of animal production and, and forage production overall? What I can say is some of the folks that are working on that now, that's actually, they're in the middle of that. How many species does it take? What functions do they represent? My own mind, I'm thinking if you had a legume and you had a grass, you probably have the key parts that you need, but others are looking at brassicas and other things. And then there's up to a dozen or more combinations of different species. So what about weeds in terms of, uh, you know, soil health? You know, I, I, I guess I've seen a couple presentations where they've talked about some of the benefits to soil health of some weeds. I was just curious, any thoughts on, you know, we're always trying to kill those weeds, but are they there for a reason? I, th- I think they've got an opening and if they're there and they're better than what's already there, they're going to take off. Um, but again, like I was saying, you know, this dog fennel, I, I think it's probably adding enough carbon. Like, what are your goals? If it, It's just, you know, as Yang started the conversation. What do we even mean by soil health? What, what is the outcome you're expecting from that healthy soil? And then what things, inputs are going to get you there? And, and so we're in very broad strokes here. And it's not going to be one answer for everything. But we can say, you know, tend to do this and tend to do that should get you in the ballpark. But you're going to have people, there'll be contradictions. One person will say, well, I, I grew these things and I grazed it heavy and, and I've got soil my soil is very healthy. Someone else would say, well, I did that and my system crashed and that's an awful way. And, and so we've just got to give options. And unless there's something that's extremely expensive or there's something detrimental, I think there's several ways to slice this pie. So um, I'm not too worried about any one specific or two specific things. If you have some weeds that aren't an issue, like they come in during when you're not growing anything and you're, it's easy to get rid of them, you're not having to put a lot of chemical out to get rid of them, then to me, that's your cover crop. So economists thinking in terms of uh, what's the question this year? So we've got a budget. We've moved into 2022. Looking at 2023, we got to cut. Okay, so where are we going to cut? We got nitrogen. We got phosphorus. We got potassium. Um, They're going to cut. Where are we cut? Phosphorus. In general, especially if your system's old, especially Bahia grass, we, we got plots right now. They've been growing six, seven years. We cut the phosphorus off. They've down near critical levels. And we still get, if not the highest, equally high as the um, complete fertilizer with everything. So to me, that would be number one to cut. But don't do anything till you get a soil report. Because you got to know what you've got before you start deciding what you're going to cut back on. So... I'm just looking into one of the commercial ads here. I was trying to look for definitions from, from NRCS and USDA in terms of soil health and soil quality. We got multiple different perspectives on that, but then I'm going into the into the labs and they, uh, uh, this, they say the best selling comprehensive soil tests, uh, and I'm pretty sure there is more. So we go from $20 from a routine soil analysis to $85 to... Uh, to the PLFA, and if I am not mistaken, is 
phospholipid fat, fatty acids. Then we have another regular soil health assessment was $52. And well, that sounds pretty cool, but it's a lot of money. And I'm not sure I'm getting the information I want in terms of the nutrients, uh, especially phosphorus and potassium and uh, the other macros and micronutrients uh, in my soil. So can you, can you run a little, so I'm a producer. I want to, I want to be a good steward and I want to do a soil health analysis. What am I looking at? Yeah, great question, Marcelo. I think um, I probably would not go start with PLFA um, because typically that uh, measures the diversity of microbes that you have in the soil. In, I think it's most effective in terms of comparing the abundances of your fungi versus your bacteria. Um, but even if you know that, that doesn't really inform you in terms of anything even related to your actual management. It doesn't inform you about your health conditions because uh, it's more of for academic purposes. Um, so I will actually suggest that folks start it with their conventional soil testing uh, because I think figuring out fertilization, uh, if you do fertilization, that's often the first priority. And then if you're interested uh, in learning more about your soil, I will start with uh, adding a soil organic matter test. From that test, you could, you know, talk to your extension agent, uh, ask them, okay, does this value look reasonable to you? If it's low compared to the, the range that Cheryl has just mentioned earlier, I think you may want to think about whether or not you could do something to add more carbon into the soil, keeping your plants, making your plants happier, um, thinking about organic amendment that. Um, if you want to do further, I will actually, you know, consult your extension agent and really maybe focus on the type of problem you may have with your soil. Um, if you are just happy, you want to burn some money, I think spending $50, $60, uh, do a bunch of, a couple of biological tests, that's okay. Um, but let, I will rather you start with your problem first, uh, like whether um, that's weeds, whether that's uh, fertility um, or anything. So if I do a test here in my, in my place in Orange Heights and Prisdas in, in, in Alabama and we're comparing results and I want to say that my soil is better than his soil, uh, are those tests comparable? Are the results comparable or, or is just local site-specific and I can compare across years or is just a snapshot of what's happening in my soil at the time? USDA, uh, NRCS, they're working on trying to standardize some of these tests across the, the country. Uh, the soil, that big soil health group, Soil Health Institute, they're working at that. Um, some of uh, faculty at the Quincy Station have been part of that. And so they are trying to find some commonalities that people can compare apples to oranges. But they're, they're still, they're probably about halfway through into that. They've still got a little ways to go. Yeah, I think Cheryl is right. I think there's a lot of ongoing work. Um, I think it's important to keep in mind that depending on where you are, your soil could be very different. Um, often, you are more likely to have an apple to orange situation than not. Because depending on the, the type of soil, you know, whether it's really sandy, how much clay you have, you know, the same organic matter or, or likewise same uh, measures of soil health could mean very different things for the two soil. Uh, I will say uh, organic matter tends to be more stable. Do a good job getting a composite sample that are representative of your field. 
that you could trust that measure to be quite stable for a couple of years uh, is unlikely to change. On the other hand, if you're really looking at the more biological indicator, you know, uh, things like uh, PLFAs or uh, active carbon, respiration, mineralization, these kind of things, uh, they actually change uh, based on season, based on, you know, where relative, they're quite responsive to management. Um, so I won't, you know, just directly compare two measurements with your friend directly. Um, but, you know, if you, if you have to, I will start with something that are more stable. Uh, for instance, like soil organic matter. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> so you brought up a really good point there. So, um, so we get our soil test back, like it shows us different levels of nutrients of, you know, PK and some micros as well. Like, is there, is there certain times of the year that nutrients are going to be more available than other times of the year? We tend to get um, higher, well, in Florida, I've, I've noticed higher values um, in a winter, spring than I do in the late summer. Doesn't mean that that's what's going to happen to everyone. I think for a person trying to manage their own land, though, it would probably be better if they could be consistently at the same time of year so that they can compare over time uh, because there is some variation for some of the nutrients. Um, I've noticed it with phosphorus and potassium, especially. Yeah, I agree. I think the seasonality is a very big deal here that I've also seen similar findings that uh, perhaps because over the winter there is you know, less biomass, less demand from the plants, uh, so more likely the soil nutrient can stick around. Uh, so again, I think I'm totally with Cheryl that um, if you were to sample every year, try to make it roughly at the same season. You said overgrazing would be the like the first way for farmer or ran ranchers in Florida that we're deteriorating soil health. Is, other ways that we're you know causing negative attributes to our soil systems. What are things that that bring down our soil systems in terms of health? Uh, I think in general, uh, including Florida, many many other places, I think agriculture in general uh, tends to you know add chemicals, fertilizers, pesticides into the soil. It disturbs the soil one way or another. Uh, I think to a much less extent, uh, you have some tramping, uh, you know, especially compared to row crop where the heavy machinery will tends to have a bigger impact on the soil physical structures, uh, even soil loss maybe. Uh, so I think all those disturbances, all these artificial effects, which are totally necessary, right, in our agricultural system, but they could have a long-term impacts on the structure, the function, or even the activity of the soils. So I think this is something that, you know, the idea of soil health is supposed to uh, raise awareness about, is the fact that, you know, there are, you know, between all those approaches, there are better approaches that could help mm -hmm. us to combat that soil degradation, uh, to get us at a better state of the soil, uh, so that you could, in the end, have a better long-term uh, return. You mentioned soil structure, building soil structure, management practices, the difference between the management practice here in the sandy soils versus management practice on heavier soils that will build or or be negative uh, for soil structure. But in the, in that same, let me let me go go the other way around in that in in that question because sometimes we have a lot of people saying, "Well, I don't use any chemicals." And, and from my view, if you don't use any fertilizer and your soil is poor and you are not producing any, any forage, talking about forage systems, that is detrimental. So the nitrogen fertilization there would come as a positive thing. It's, it's, not, it's not about 
is this organic based input or a, a man-made input, synthetic input? It's what will you grow? How will you grow healthy forages? And there may be something about doing a few different varieties or species of forages, right? So, some biodiversity there. If it's, a, if it's healthy above ground, it's probably healthy below ground. And get your solar report, do the basics that we've been talking about for decades. And then if you're still having problems, then go check out with your agent or a specialist and let's find out what your particular problem is because then maybe there's something else that we haven't really taken notice of. Um, but for pasture grazing hay systems, it's pretty, it's one of the simplest systems, you know, to keep healthy compared to row, row crops has, has a whole different thing. So if the soil happens to be, you know, in, in short of those fertilizers by giving chemical fertilizer that could actually, you know, increase the performance of the whole system, that's not a bad thing for soil health. Um, but well, on the other hand, if the growers are happy, like if they're like, okay, I'm, I'm very happy with my system. I don't need fertilizer. You know, so be it, right? Perfect. Uh, we don't have to interfere. When we're doing the soil report and you get your phosphorus analyzed, your potassium analyzed, you're not analyzing for total. You're analyzing for uh, a subset of that, which is tends to be related to plant availability. It's not a direct cause and effect, but um, has that re relationship. And so the total is usually several times more than what we're measuring. And so if you do have a good microbial community, that is one thing where it's going to help weather those minerals and turn over those nutrients. So part of that whole nutrient cycling um, probably ties into it. And that's also an aspect of soil health that probably is helpful to the plant. I, I just want to say this has been a fun topic, and I'm so glad that Yang is part of uh, the conversation and i really appreciate you guys bringing up this topic i really appreciate the opportunity to be here i really enjoyed the discussion uh, but our group uh, my, my research group is currently planning uh, a kind of a baseline survey of the soil health conditions for our florida ranch lands and also for the growers and the ranchers out there if you are interested in in getting your soil sampled for soil health uh, in contributing to a baseline evaluation about soil health con uh, conditions in the state of Florida, please feel free to contact me uh, and then I will um, coordinate this. And I promise that we will return uh, your result to you and then we will also um, put the data in a public forum so every researcher's stakeholder can have access to. We will for sure uh, mask your identity or locations, uh, so don't worry of, of your privacy issues. Um, so if you're interested in that, uh, feel free to reach out at YLIN number two at ufl.edu or you could just give me a call at 352-294-3125 uh, thank you for joining us on this cow talks podcast we hope you've enjoyed this conversation if you have any questions ideas follow-ups or comments please reach out to us through our email forages at ifas.ufl.edu that is forages at ifas.ufl.edu or find us on our social media, uf.forages on Instagram, uf.forage team on Facebook, or uf.forages on YouTube.